0: You're listening to the Speaking Generally podcast with Stephen Hussey, Dr. Stephen Hussey, and his good friend, George Taylor. That's me. How's everyone doing out there, guys?
1: You guys don't know this, but that is George, his very ironic DJ radio voice. And I'm, I'm here for it, and I love it. <laughs> uh, well, hello, that's, everyone. That's taken it out of me, really. So he's done. He's, he's got the wind out of him. I'm picking up the site from here. Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Um, we are going to talk about a few little topics today, George, because you know what I found out? I found out our stock is rising, my friend. Um, it's is it's finally out- one of your
0: investments? Or-
1: <laughs> it, it's not, but it's sort of something we've been investing in our entire lives and in this podcast. Uh, okay. As you know we some might say we talk too much about books on this mm. podcast george um but those people probably left a long time ago <laughs> uh, but uh i was reading a piece in the guardian the british mm. newspaper the british rag the guardian
0: i think and... i know the article you're referring to
1: well it said guess what guess who's on demand on <laughs> dating sites Apparently, readers are in high demand Here in dating sites, with one app f- focused entirely on bringing book lovers together. And the, the sort of title of this piece asks, is our taste in literature truly a good indication of compatibility?
0: Didn't it also have quite a sneering byline along the lines of, oh, I wouldn't go out with somebody who reads Jack Reacher books.
1: That th- It did say that, and I'm going to... I'm going to do an impression of the man who said that because they quote a few people. So the article is basically that. It's saying that, let's just get the numbers out here. It says, uh, in 2017, eHarmony found that women who expressed an interest in books on their profiles received 3% more messages than the average. That's not that high, is it? But it says men saw a massive 19% jump brackets literary men are extremely desirable as the 1.3 million followers of hot dudes reading instagram account can attest
0: i spent quite a lot of time on that account earlier today steve on the Did back you? of this article literally yeah i was going through it looking at the guys with the all the pictures for the most likes so
1: yeah. apparently there's uh so apparently the the app called book lovers which is this sort of very niche dating app, it seems, focused on... How's your
0: profile looking on that?
1: <laughs> First time I've heard of it, George, but I'll definitely go and the <laughs> to it for the, for the summer of love coming up post-COVID. Uh, it says, we don't, you know, they don't let you... Uh, they don't have any algorithm for the specific books because they say, we prefer to leave it to serendipity. You know, it gives them an easy conversation starter. But... um what they were basically saying is, I, I, I want to throw this to you, George. You are a married man. Um, I, You and your lovely lady wife, Elizabeth, are both readers. Uh, she is sure. doing a PhD. Uh, you've got two... Got ma- a she's got a Oh, she's got a PhD. Sorry. Excuse me. She has one now. And uh, you've done two masters, one in literature. Um do you care if she likes the same books as you because what i see here is a lot of people well no you answer that first do you care if she likes the same books as you
0: Uh, the important thing i guess is that she likes to read right so you're asking that question with the assumption that you're a couple of readers does it matter if you like the same books is that what you're asking yeah yeah um Mm. Does that matter? Yeah, I think it probably does. I think it would get tiresome if you constantly argued about the cultural like, cultural things you liked, right? If you could never... It's slightly different, say, with films, but if you could never agree to watch the same film, that would become tiresome after a while. And I think there's something really sweet and nice in recommending a book to someone and having them appreciate and like it and being recommended a book and knowing, oh, wow, they really knew my taste. So I think it is in a longer term relationship, probably it's not essential that you like everything together, but having an overlap in the things you have a shared taste in is important, I would say. Um, yeah, it would be, it would become annoying if you went, oh, what do you think about, it? I hated it. Because it, it starts to reflect on you, doesn't it? Uh,
1: yeah, I do, I agree, but I kind of feel like there's definitely would be areas where you love something they don't like. or can. Completely,
0: completely agree, but I think, we both really love P.G. Woodhouse. We both really liked. I don't, I don't know, there's lots of books that we have really liked together. There's loads of stuff she reads that I wouldn't. Ever you you almost need her,
1: so. you almost need a selection or a few things that you you both do passionately really like. And I'm I'm yeah. thinking back right now to past girlfriends I've had, and you know I I like intelligent women, George, um, and they've all been readers. My girlfriends, girlfriends. I'm not like. I don't know so when you say sure. girl, when you say girlfriends plural, it sounds like you're showing off. Um, but yeah, when I think about them, it was always like a few books we were like super jointly passionate about. <clears throat> but we might have like some authors would leave them cold. If I said like I don't know, or if I like talk about Hemingway, they might be like, "No, I don't really care about care for Hemingway." But there'd be a few things we were like passionately. Shared a love for, or some movies we really saw eye to eye on, but it'd be kind of. I, I think it's more important. I guess what I'm saying is, it's pro- almost more important to have a few big commonalities rather than which this article alludes to, and I've heard before. Some people say if they have Ayn Rand on their shelf, that's a no from me, or like these odd yeah. deal breakers of like, oh, if they've got sci-fi. God, yeah, I find snobbery.
0: that I find that really that kind of reverse snobbery. Or like I don't know, it's very it's a very narrow-minded sort of um, snobbery, if that is quite the right word. Like, uh, "France" and on the shelf, no, thank you. Yeah, it's like well, the book underneath it might be I don't know, like. Bell Hooks or something. It it doesn't reading one author doesn't preclude your ability to read other authors. That's the thing about that point that I just find so incredibly tiresome. That there's a very deep, yeah, a very deep short-sightedness if you can say such a thing about about that attitude. That that really boils my blood, I think. But um, yeah,
1: I hate that because it shows as well. Like, a, I might read some things and have them on my shelf, and I don't love them, but I wanted to read them. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so, yeah, well, yeah, completely. And, out. I read. Yeah, I hated it, but it's still on my shelf. But you've assumed everything about me based on a picture of my bookshelf.
1: Yeah, and yeah, yeah and and it's like, well, I want to read. I, I, I would, I read like sometimes I read like non-fictional political books. I completely disagree with, but I just, yeah, I, yeah, I want to hear that side, or I want to hear someone from that camp what they think. So completely. I find that very strange that people would be when people are like, I, sorry, I judge by your <laughs> bookshelf. i who the fuck do you think you are? Like,
0: yeah, completely that. I mean, yeah. If it, and it also, I've read a lot of stuff like that where it's just like, oh yeah, everything on the bookshop is fine, but there was a Franson in there, there was a Foster Wallace in there, so I'm out. And it's like, what, what one book among fifty others? You're out, are you? Like, all right, <laughs> yeah, bye. Um, but yeah, I think <laughs> the point you say about having like a, as long as there's just a sort of enough of an overlap that. You're, I don't know yeah it's it's a point that you can share and sort of exchange together but it would be strange I think to both say both be readers in a couple and you have zero commonality in the things you like I mean if you both read a lot you're going to overlap on things surely unless one of you purely reads you know nonfiction for work or something and the other one's a writer but I it would be strange to be in a in a long relationship where you don't have any shared cultural, similarities I would I would think
1: yeah I think you I mean certainly the activity of reading itself we've talked about before like it's very it's very useful if your partner shares that if that is a big part of your life
0: I think there was a point in that article that said where it's talking like I'm guessing more about first dates which is a different beast it's like well actually you don't have to like the same thing because you might have a sort of fiery sexy debate about how all oh, I loved you know, I love Jonathan Franson. Oh, no, he's such a pig. Oh, and you're going to sort of flirt your, way, flirt your way through the little debate. That's a very different thing, right? It's sort of, oh, I love that. I hated it. And you have a little play fight about it. But yeah. longer term, being able to sort of share overlapping interests is... But often the things you read really do tend to reflect your personality or the things you hold to be important. So, yeah, it would be strange if you can't um, can't share... Share that with your partner. I, I would think
1: it's it's probably true. Actually, I actually just before this discussion, I would have thought, oh, maybe it doesn't matter very much if you enjoy the same literature. But now I'm thinking of it, it would be a real problem if if you didn't. Yeah, you you need some key points of overlap. Just
0: you know what? If, if you recommended a book to me and I, I hated it, what are you talking about? It's rubbish. That. That would be annoying once, right? <laughs> if I just did that every every time you recommended a book to me, like, crap, didn't like it. What are you thinking? Oh, if you like that, you've got to be an idiot. Like, that's a really frustrating thing because to recommend a book is quite a personal personal thing to do, I think. And that constant rebuttal, I would I would take that very personally.
1: And I, re- I reckon me and you have had that a couple of times, but we agree on probably, like, eight and That's it.
0: 100%. That's great. That's the great thing about it, right, is if, like... Eight, probably with us, it's like eight or nine out of 10 things we overlap with and do like, and then there'll be outliers where we don't, maybe more so with films. Mm. But um, I think it'll relate, like if you can have sort of 50, if you're two people who are coming from very different backgrounds, so you can have sort of 40, 50% shared likes and then other things are different. I think that's a good enough middle ground to be coming from. But um, more than that, might start to get a bit frustrating.
1: So James... A 63-year-old book lovers user in Canterbury. He said, I'd have a problem being with someone who really likes Jack Reacher. (laughs) (laughs) He goes on, they're competent novels, but I like D.H. Lawrence and Joseph Comrade. When I was at university, liking D.H. Lawrence would make you kind of trendy. Although I did leave Oxford a virgin, so it didn't really work
0: yeah I read that earlier I was I was confused a couple of things I'm I'm guessing he's a guy looking to meet guys I would assume I don't the Jack Reacher novels are just not marketed towards women
1: Um, oh you're you're assuming
0: that's my assumption there because as a it would be a strange thing for a guy to say yeah I'm sort of looking for a woman who reads but she mustn't read the Jack Reacher novel it it would be like (laughs) saying like a girl going, oh, yeah, I'm looking for a guy who reads, but I hope he doesn't read Sophie Kinsella. It's like, well, yeah, he won't. He won't be reading Sophie Kinsella. It's not something like, you have yeah. to worry about. So, um, so I'm, a, I'm assuming he's a guy looking to meet another guy, but then I don't think he'd be meeting the kind of guys he likes, Jack Reacher if he's sort of... It just seems like that's not something he has to worry about.
1: Yeah, it sounds like the circles James runs in are not... Yeah, exa- exactly. They're not with Jack Reacher fans.
0: Exactly. Um, yeah, anyway, he's going to be reading Alan Bennett, like smart and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, Very. It, it seemed like a strange thing to worry about. But, uh, <laughs> good luck. I'm keeping my fingers crossed for him.
1: I like that he says when he was at university, D.H. Lawrence would make you kind of trendy.
0: How old did you say he was?
1: Yeah, that's what I was saying. He's 63, but uh, I mean... Even trend, that's Again, trendy in what circles?
0: yeah. Yeah, it's not the Jack Reacher crowd. <laughs> Bizarre. Um, good luck. Good luck to him. Let me know luck. if you bump into him on there.
1: Yeah, it was it was interesting that um, you know, people well, it, you know, they I think the numbers show that women read more or read more certainly they read a lot more fiction than men do. Yeah, um, but, by a, a large amount, do. right? So I I think, I think I do see that if, uh, you know, when, even when I'm a wooing George, Mm -hmm. if there's, you know, there's, you have a real advantage. I will just say this candidly. You have a real advantage as a man. If you like literary women and you are literary and, you know, you're also like a gregarious, interesting, socially. Six for
0: three male model,
1: yeah. I'm not six-foot-free or a model. I wasn't talking um, about you. no, I was gonna say you got you got the wrong guy. Um but yeah, if you if you if they're like, oh god, and he's like a reader like me, I think women struggle a lot more to meet a man who like reads a lot of fiction yeah. and enjoys that stuff or enjoys poetry and things like that. So me and you, George, in certain circles are hot tickets. <laughs>
0: Would you say I, I would say it, it probably is the case. I would find it very, very difficult to be in a relationship or even in friendships often with people who don't read. Um, but I think there are almost certainly lots of certainly lots of women who sort of quote unquote sort of suffer through a relationship with a partner who doesn't share that interest at all. Whereas yeah, if you're a guy who reads, chances are your female partner is going to be someone who does read just because it's the numbers game like that.
1: Yeah, I I think that's probably true. I wonder if... Do, I mean, obviously going with the cliché, lots of guys are more into sport. I wonder if guys who are into sport... I guess they a lot of those guys don't expect women to be as into football as he is, though, do they? So I don't know. No, he'd yeah, probably no, like, like it. It's like a he'd pleasant be.
0: surprise kind of thing, yeah. Yeah,
1: he'd like it a lot, but yeah, maybe it's maybe it's similar in that it's like a pleasant surprise, but yeah, I... um, also, I mean, the sort of yeah on that cliche that like women
0: aren't into sport as much my Elizabeth isn't into sport but she works out all the time does loads of exercise that's like, you know physical stuff still a big part of her life she's just not checking the football scores so it's like it still takes up often an equal amount of time even though you're not into that thing she's still doing it you know
1: right right um but yeah I think interests are there's still there's still an underrated way to like a really good underrated shorthand to actually meet someone who's right for you I know it's like I don't know people say like maybe you'll meet them at a cooking class or whatever but if you really laser focus on your actual interests and get in those those milieus and those groups you're you're way way dramatically rising your chances of meeting someone you connect to them. Hundreds.
0: well we used to live in london i think we'd said this several times there's a really beautiful bookshop near where we were and they did daunt books holland park if you're wondering uh, and they would often do like like wine wine in a book launch or something on a thursday night i mean that's surely just go go truffling around there all sorts going to be going on
1: yeah daunt's wonderful i i I still stand by london has better bookshops than new york even george
0: but for, and then for meeting and then for meeting like minded people right if you're going to be at those events, the sort of people who have even found out that those events are happening are very likely to be like minded
1: yeah yeah mm. speaking of which George I've been in my little writing uh my little writing classes how's it really? how's it going it's going really good i um I've only, I've done a couple now and, you know, we hand in our pages, like five pages before each class, get comments during the class, probably old hat for someone like you who's been through, been through all that at university, but it was very new to me.
0: Is your plan to use this podcast as sort of soft launch for the book, you know, kind of drum up a couple of hundred, a couple of hundred hardback sales on the back of seeding it six months
1: out? Yeah, get you know if you what's that thing? If you've got a thousand true fans, just bam—that's all I need to get get this baby going. You're um, okay. I uh, yeah, I've been. It's been really rewarding. Actually, encouraging is the word I would use. It's been encouraging because I've actually, I actually, last class got some really nice feedback on a sort of scene I wrote of a sort of failed, you know, um, a sort of unrequited love scene. Of a failed pass uh, at someone, and uh, hey, just write,
0: write about what you know, sort of thing.
1: Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, taking me right back to adolescence. <laughs> Luckily, things improved for me during my twenties, but the uh, the memory's still there. But I, uh, just just learning, like building a scene, uh, and it's definitely I've written things like it before, but just one thing I didn't used to do in writing a lot when I was writing fiction was trying to, I would want to like resolve tension really quickly. And something I've learned is like how to expand out a scene and keep the tension hanging in the air. So you don't know what's going to happen next or, you know, really stretching out the emotions and how someone is trying and feeling like all that balance It's like bread and butter craft stuff of writing, but, just realizing even when i've been reading that kazuo ishiguro remains of the day and holding it's, the scene it's best
0: book by a million
1: miles. it's really good and, and heartbreaking as well and and there's a scene in that where you know spoiler alert uh, but i haven't finished it yet but spoiler alert for kazuo ishiguro um there's a there's a scene where his father is mortally ill in like the other another room and he's also having to cater he's a butler and he's also having to cater to these kind of pompous people who are all pontificating about the war in the smoke-filled room and he's having to do all this dinner service and something terrible and heartbreaking is happening in the next room but he sort of has to stick by his butler duties while you know his dad is essentially dying uh within the minutes and it's just the way that scene gets pulled and stretched out so that you're feeling his like Heartbreaking slow motion of him, his tension between sort of duty and family. Yeah, the and world does it, yeah.
0: doesn't it? As well, the set, like the set, a setting of duty makes that even more poignant, right? Like you could see that scene being replicated in a, a samurai, you know, a geisha having to. That scene could be duplicated in plenty of settings, right? Where where duty and propriety are already prerequisites for that world, but you couldn't write that scene in a. It wouldn't work in a pub in the same right. way, right? Like, oh, I've got to serve all these drinks. You'd be like, no, go on, go and deal with it. But yeah. in those worlds, you can't do that. So yeah, he uses that environment as a really good way to create that tension, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah and
1: that, and you know, the world in which he's his identity, right, is someone who does his does his work and his duty and maintains his composure and doesn't let his feelings out. So yeah, yeah. and and it's just really beautifully done, and and. Yeah, so that's just just something. I, basically, I was doing well because I was being told that I actually effectively was doing something like that in this scene, where you know, keeping tension. Was and, uh,
0: that uh, writing? Was that reading homework for you for your work? Like, were you told to read that because that would be relevant to the tension we, we were you actually create?
1: we were actually given a bunch of books and and kind of picked picked one to read for the class to kind of like, you know. Just have something to be. What learned. else
0: for you? What else was suggested to you? I'm interested.
1: Um, oh, there was a bunch. Actually, I think the other because Ishiguro one was on there. and never let me go. But it was. There was also like Haruka Murakami, Wind Up Bird Chronicle. Yeah. Um, uh, Great Gatsby, Magic Mountain, uh, As I Lay Dying, lots of um, lots of grapes of wrath. Just kind of a selection of books. Yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, I guess I'm writing in a fairly contemporary voice, but I wanted something that just felt quite, like, British-English. Uh...
0: If uh, if being a reader adds sort of 20% to your sort of sexy online cachet, does being a writer add to that even further, or does it detract from it somewhat, suddenly become a kind of Dylan Moran, miserable sort of figure?
1: Writer's a weird one. I don't think there's... I don't think there's like a sexual cachet to being a writer because there's so few. You know, it's like if you were really great and successful, I'd know who you are, sort of thing. Right. So yeah. they, some people hear writer and they think like, oh, you're a journalist or you work for a magazine or you're some hack and like. Yeah, it know. doesn't
0: immediately mean novelist, does it? If you say you're a writer. No,
1: and so I think a lot of, for a lot of people, it's like, well, are you are you a successful writer or are you just a. It's, it's a bit like saying entrepreneur where it's very ambiguous as to how successful you are. Whereas if you say doctor, lawyer, there's cachet, there's yeah. status, there's prestige. But there's very varying levels of writer or entrepreneur success. So, yeah, probably podcaster, George, is the same where <laughs> podcaster could mean unemployed loser. Yeah, or you're Joe
0: Rogan. Or you're but Joe you'd recognise him. him, wouldn't you?
1: yeah. So I'm, yeah. I'm not sure a writer has that cachet, but it does. Um, yeah, it's so it's just been it's just been very good, and I feel I'm improving and learning. It does at the moment, George. One of the things I'm struggling with as a person is whether I'm spreading myself too thin. Okay. Have you ever have you ever had this? <laughs>
0: um, yeah, I think so. I think if you're kind of, you know, sort of self does it have to be being self-employed that's brought that about for me? Um, yeah, I've certainly had that experience where I've had multiple projects on the go and it's, you get them all done, but there's not much else left. And sometimes you think it'd be nice to be doing something where you just kind of five o'clock and you leave your work there. I think having a, a kind of role that, that is never really finished makes that feeling more persistent. Um, yeah. But, but I think if you've either done long academic stuff and or have been, yeah, self-employed or kind of in the entrepreneurial world, that's it's very hard to escape feeling like you're spreading yourself thin because the primary requirements of what you're doing already take up so much of your energy that anything else on top of that is is brutal, is often quite a brutal extra.
1: Yeah, it's hard because I feel like I I always expect a lot of myself and I always feel like I could be doing more things at one time, but is that there's kind of this tension always between like right now I'm doing that, right? The writing classes that that's like five pages a week. It actually ends up quite a lot of work to make sure you yeah. a polished five pages that you feel, you know, is also progressing the story along that you're writing as you go. That's challenging. And then there's like, I do podcasts with my brother podcast with you. Um, Videos on YouTube. I've been doing now. If people want to go, Stephen Hussey on YouTube. You can find my channel. That's a little plug there. that end, <laughs> <laughs> uh, And yeah, just adding up all these things. And obviously, like I have a full-time job. I work in a company, you know, with my brother. Uh, and so, I uh, I do sometimes. It's very hard to know wh- whether you should be sacrificing. Like, should I just be going on these things and and treat them like a portfolio of? investments and just if one happens to start going gangbusters and really pay off then you should be like oh this is really working well i should triple down on this like i'm nearly you know i'm halfway through this novel now and it's going great i should triple down on that and sacrifice other things you know i do that's my sort of strategic mind what it thinks because i i think well sacrificing all for something you don't know the result of always just seems like the the investor in me george which you know i've become quite obsessed with investment knows that that's not a good idea it's like you could just risk plunging a year well
0: now's now's the wrong time isn't it i suppose unfortunately now you do just if that's your strategy you have to see at least one of them to at least it's like fruition or culmination you can't walk like you can't go all in on the novel until I don't know. You got a book deal for if you got a book deal from it, then maybe this podcast goes well, down the drain.
1: But that's the thing. Like, I wouldn't be expecting such grandiose things from writing a novel, right? Because that would be like the 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 mere statistics alone are not in your favor of you're going to write a novel and it's going to be a big seller and blah. No, blah. so what I'm saying so that would, you would be only... a crazy thing to to do in a lot of ways, right?
0: Yeah. So you would only cast the other things aside if that statistical wonder paid off right if oh wow i actually did get a book deal from that sort of long reach that i took then maybe you can let the other let the podcasts go
1: come on mate i'm not don't, i'm not gonna abandon <laughs> this it's too much
0: i thought you were <laughs> looking for an easy out
1: <laughs> what if this was my long-winded way of of bringing that up That'd
0: be great. So, so or, if or if you decided that this was the thing you're sticking with, and you're going to you're <laughs> going to kick the job, yeah. the novel, everything else down the drain. George, it, this is the one.
1: What I'm saying, George, is we need to release four a week, and I'm all. In. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. What if I was saying, look, there's, so there's five of them. One of them's got to go, buddy. One of them. You, you
0: do the maths.
1: Um, no, but yeah. So I, I would never be grandiose enough to think like. I don't have some illusion that I'm a great novelist in waiting or anything like that. It's like a hobby. I'm enjoying it. I want you also to also
0: Probably think there's some potential outcome.
1: I think there's a. I, my best hope would be I make something I'm really proud of and have a go, at, like getting it published. That would be like the, the. That would be the optimistic scenarios. Like you'd finish one, you think this is great, or I really like it, and I want to pursue you know trying to get it to go somewhere but like again there would be no illusion that yeah, I would do that and quit my job because no, again, right. it's like that's not that I like my job a lot and it's a lot more profitable uh so yeah I don't know but I do, I I this is something all my life I wrestle with the between like sacrificing to invest a lot in one thing or doing several things but I find when I do, if I've ever gone and sacrificed everything to do one thing, I usually end up kind of a bit uh, stagnating and miserable. And I, maybe I've got the kind of brain that needs to be engaged in several different things at the same time.
0: I feel like I go through a bit in the press. I'll be spread thin on different things, and then yeah, one just sort of picks up a bit more traction, and then that just gets proportionally more energy. And I feel like that's isn't that what you've done, say? When you read the book with your brother, other things fell by the wayside a bit so that you could do that. And then yeah. you got back to evening out, and then the PhD needs more focus. So the other things slip away. And it's it's kind of peaks and troughs, really. And then when one
1: yeah, and if the, and-
0: pursued an academic career, that would have been the thing you'd have put your emphasis on, but you kind of the timings work out differently, don't they? So
1: And there probably was a bridge where I realized when it was the final year of my PhD, I realized the academic job market is really precarious. It's extremely hard to get a job in philosophy as a postgrad, and I'm ha- I'm doing much more. Like, there's a much more certain career here that I've built up over time with my brother in this company. So it kind of then I guess that that was the point where it's like I don't need to juggle these balls in the air. Yeah, I want to actually commit to the thing I'm doing with my brother. So I, I probably subconsciously do that. It's uh. Yeah, I don't know. It's just some people seem to be very good at knowing their, to use that Japanese term, ikigai. They like know their thing that they really want to pursue. Like, this might be a terrible example, but you currently work in a company with a friend of ours, uh, Cooper, and he, as he, would you say he's kind of like, Plunged in on business on the company he's doing now, or is he more of a man of many hats and like? No, a
0: whole, kind of all for one, a, a very talented man with multiple abilities, but one sort of goal and pursuit really at the moment. Which I think, for him, a man who's also completed a PhD and this kind of very single-minded focus on an academic pursuit he has been able to convert that into the business idea so it's really the long-standing a long-standing procedure you know it's not like oh the phd's done i'll move on to something else it's he's taken that into what the business now is so there's maybe um there's kind of a bit more of a singular track throughout it's been quite a long game and like a sort of single directional um focus in many ways
1: for him, say. right, because he's highly intelligent and creative. And if we can say some of his background, he worked on, like, the pilot of Game of Thrones, right, back in Yeah, years. I, don't,
0: I don't know if we can talk about that. We can't <laughs> talk. I'm not sure. Maybe we'll skip. Yeah, maybe we cut, cut out. It out. Okay. Um, okay. We can yeah. say he's done a lot of writing. All right, we'll
1: say he's done screenwriting. Uh, yeah. So, so he's highly intelligent, and he you know has also had some success previously like screenwriting and writing scripts and things right yeah he's published
0: published a lot of short stories and i think won a lot of literary prizes in his kind of (laughs) pre-academic career as well so yeah very creative
1: does he still in his like back burner think oh i've got there's a budding literary career i left behind or does he see it as that that was a previous life where he spent more time on writing as a skill
0: it's an interesting question i think if he pursued that he could have taken that further but i think realized that so he's kind of applied linguistics is his field and i think has realized that he has a very particular set very particular set of skills (laughs) um so like a kind of expertise that is unique to him so i think is therefore pursuing the thing that in many ways only he can do he's the only person who's done this kind of research and is applying it in a way that is is unique whereas there are thousands of short story writers out there you know you'd maybe be be good but still one of many or here doing something where he can quite i think with a lot of confidence say i'm the best in the world at doing these very specific things yeah and is helping people as a result of that rather than just, oh, here's something you might find distracting and entertaining, read a short story. It's like he's kind of I don't know, the fanciful thing to say would be he's like empowering people to, you know, enhance and improve their lives by giving them access to language learning that they wouldn't otherwise benefit from. So it's I think fun. that that kind of makes the decision for him, I guess. Yeah.
1: Well, that's great if you find that like I there's some personal development or career writer who talks about being a meaningful specific and that kind of is the dream right if you find something that intersects your talents in a specific way where mm. it's usually and it's usually not one skill it's like a combination of like you can write but you can also do a particular form of communication or like what Joe Rogan right is like MMA and podcasting and his his kind of curiosity somehow comes together of like yeah. this like masculine guy who also likes to talk about all this range of stuff. So I yeah, it's it's almost like finding constantly closing in on where you you fit that no one else can, I think. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, definitely. Um yeah, I, said, I, I also give Cooper the credit of saying that he probably could have been a professional athlete if he wanted to pursue that you know he's, he's run like a two and a half hour marathon is that true that. yeah so um yeah, yeah lots of lots of strings to his bow and he's closed a lot of those down to do what we're doing now so yeah that's uh yeah got a lot of respect for that um
1: haruki murakami runs two marathons a year i think
0: yeah nuts. a couple
1: of marathons a year and he's, he's like 70 something
0: yeah and they're quick marathons as well
1: yeah
0: um horrible, horrible business As has <laughs> been as we've gone on record several times to say
1: uh well do, will you watch my youtube videos george mm, will i will i good I'm, question i'm, I'm uh... i watched
0: i've watched the first i watched the first one and i think i liked it
1: there you go uh that's my most viewed one now
0: <laughs> one one of <view>. you <laughs> um
1: that well that's one bit where i'm I'm eating my own pudding, as it were, practicing S- present. <laughs> practicing presentation skills and doing it. And I just did a YouTube live with my brother today. It it is a constant, it is a constant learning curve trying to do all of these, like do things live, do things on video, present well, speaking. I know I keep harping on it, but if you can like Try and work on improving that skill, man. It, it really helps because it just lets you do a lot of things. But
0: do you think it helps everyone, or do you think it? I
1: mean, I don't think work everyone. In this world, right? I don't so think it everyone has to. So, yeah, I don't think everyone has to do it. It's like I've said. I just think it's it's such a nifty skill if you can suddenly be asked to be on a video and you're comfortable. And do you
0: think that's more? more you know if you're a software engineer a year ago you're not probably not going to be asked to be on a zoom call and present something but now maybe do you think people who work in a world where sitting in front of a youtube live is never normally on their agenda are suddenly more likely to have to deal with this
1: well yeah i i think it's much more likelihood and much more probability that people will have to interact with strangers perhaps through the internet or customers and be able to do even in a small group setting these sorts of things and if you there's very you know most times you get more successful at something you're then handed more responsibility and you'll be required to do something under pressure whether it's speak present uh, sell an idea um, and yeah I just I know how much it takes for me to be able to truly relax and be myself on a camera live with an audience watching. And it ke- it keeps paying off if I invest in that skill. And probably some people have it a lot more naturally than others. So some people <laughs> some people would just take a lot more work. And I, I'm, prob- I'm probably one of those people where I naturally, I, I think I can communicate my ideas well and I can summarize what I'm thinking, but the actual communication, getting the voice modulation right, trying to be entertaining, trying to speak with clarity, that these all take a lot of practice and you
0: think that are you talk about that particularly for live things like do you doing this now find this difficult
1: well this is even, it just this, in front of
0: live audiences this is probably
1: even something i've improved at over time but like i've done a lot of podcasts now so i'm getting better but there's still a lot i would listen back critically and say i have to figure out or get better at yeah um
0: that's true and, of everything isn't it though That's not just, you know, that's playing squash every time (laughs) you watch back an old game and you want to improve things. But being able to specifically, I'm asking for, you know, being your kind of honest, true self in front of an audience. Do you find that easier now knowing this is pre-recorded versus if people were watching us doing this live?
1: Yeah, this medium is easier um, because it feels more intimate. And I do radio podcasting feels easier to do in that way, I feel more comfortable with it. Yeah, but
0: would you it, even is that also expect, I suppose you and I know each other very well. You do it with your brother Matt, right? So the very people you're not. If you were doing this with a stranger, would you be a different person? I think, think?
1: I, yeah, I, and I even had like someone do a small interview with me last year, and I, you know, my my friend Jameson and co-worker Jameson says he's learned to always be super humble about how his own brain can mess with him because you think you're super confident or you're comfortable. You think you've like really got it handled. But say you're asked to do like an interview or a podcast interview. It suddenly feels like high state. Someone's like, oh, we're turning the cameras on. This is now going to go out on the internet. You're like, who's going to see this? What am I doing? Am I sounding stupid? Am I saying it right? Just all that stuff. Suddenly, once you get in your head like that, and the real thing you have to learn is to not get in your head, and to try as best you can as to just be purely in the moment and relax and be yourself as much as possible. But weirdly, that takes training and it takes work to kind of let go of your filters and your judgment and all that stuff. So, yeah, and yeah, I I know I've like harped on about it and repeated it. I just think that people benefit a lot from being comfortable with it yeah I mean definitely um, one thing George so I'm going to do a quick transition on this bit so I'll uh sure so um uh, wait how do we transition um welcome to the no So, yeah, George, uh, start that YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> book, book boy George, uh, get it cracking. Well, George, did you watch the biggest event of the whole year? I know everyone was extremely excited this year for the remote Oscars.
0: I, I did. I I watched it because it was such a treat to be able to watch it in the right time zone for it and not have to go to, you know, not have to stay up till five in the morning in the UK to watch it. So I did. um, I think I had that when
1: I was in LA, I was excited to actually watch it in real time. I mean, I
0: suppose I was still three hours out of the real time zone, frankly, being on Eastern time is still not that close to LA time, but um, yeah, a big advantage to the UK, but listeners of this podcast, I suppose not Oscar's buff, but I do put a lot of stock in best pictures and things like that. Um, I thought, in general, it was a pretty good show. I thought they put it on. If it, it felt like a, it felt like a really kind of a wealthy 60th birthday reunion party. That was kind of the vibe. You know, it was like, oh, the family. He's, he's invited everyone to a lovely hotel, and you know, all the family have come in, and it's you know, you know, granddad's 60th or whatever. It had that kind of like wealthy family birthday party vibe to it, uh, which I thought was was quite nice. Um, they, they certainly messed up the ordering at the end, but I think that was, I don't know, a kind of a risk that was probably worth taking, maybe. It would have been... They had the worst possible outcome was Anthony Hopkins winning because he was the only one not there and not able to go and collect something in person, right?
1: Was that him not wanting to risk the... Car? I guess he couldn't fly and stuff.
0: Yeah, and I think... So they want, they they refused to let anyone do a Zoom acceptance. So if you were based in the UK, you needed to be in London. And they... Well, he's eight, eighty-three or eighty-four, right? So I think he was very, very much within his rights to decide to stay back in Wales. But of all the nominees, he was the only one not able to go and collect it, and he went and won. So that's um, yeah, bad, bad luck, really.
1: But uh, and is that is that his second Oscar after Silence of the Lambs*?
0: Yeah, that's correct. Yeah,
1: I think. Um, Ooh,
0: is that correct? Yeah, yeah, it's his second. He's also in the film version of *Remains of the Day*, which is very much
1: worth seeing. Um, I, uh, I think that's one of the best actor, the and science of the Lambs, it's one of the best actor winners with the smallest amount of screen time in the film. Um, oh, yeah, that might uh, be right. I think Judi
0: Dench has got the record for Judy that.
1: Judi Dench is Queen Elizabeth in um, the Shakespeare in Love, right? And she's got like, a scene or two? A couple of scenes? Yeah, she's in,
0: I think she's on screen for like six minutes.
1: Wow. Um, yeah. yeah, and Hopkins and Hannibal Lecter's only in a film for about I think he has like thir- less than 30 minutes screen time. He's
0: got a mask on for most of it. A you know. mask
1: on. Um, yeah, good, uh, good on the boy though.
0: I've, and, I've not, seen, not seen The Father. I don't think it's been released anywhere yet. I don't think anyone's seen it.
1: No. I did watch Nomadland with my mum.
0: How did you feel about it?
1: I, I thought it was pretty good. I, I Did didn't... you? Yeah, I thought it was have you seen it? Yeah. I thought it was um sort of enjoyable sort of it was subtle when it's a it's a kind of quiet film but it was kind of an interesting exploration of a subculture in America that you don't see a lot which is quite prevalent like drivers people who live on the road you know America's a big country and very sparse in some places and so it was it was kind of an exploration of like grief and loss and trying to move on from loss and yeah Yeah. I, i i was expecting i think i was expecting to be more i was expecting to be bored by it and i was kind of thinking this is kind of a little bit like you know oscar sometimes loves a bit of misery porn like a bit of like uh the revenant or moonlight where there's like just just lots of like someone suffering a lot and it kind of likes that those movies they're not movies i dislike but they are a particular kind and i thought oh this is kind of one of those like uh but i thought i don't know i was quite i was quite moved by it by the end and uh, really
0: i think my issues with it were that uh, it gains it gains all of its aesthetic beauty which a lot of films do from almost essentially it's the environment is doing the work rather than the cinematographer per se is, that, well, Utah looks beautiful, so it was easy. Um, but I think it, all of its poignancy and kind of emotional heft come from real people and often real people playing themselves. So it felt a little bit like, well, it should just be a documentary there. And I didn't think that the narrative elements of it were particularly poignant or moving the kind of scripted aspects of them. So it, it gained, It's, oh, it's such a powerful film because this subculture exists and these people have to live these really difficult lives. Well, yeah, but that's got nothing to do with Nomadland, the film. Do you know what I mean? It's like that subculture is a poignant thing to consider and that people have to live that life and that kind of transience of it. And all that is really powerful, but that isn't necessarily because the film expressed it particularly well. I didn't think it, it didn't have much... I don't know, energy, um, drive, I wasn't invested in the fictitious aspects of the film, particularly, I didn't think her narrative was super compelling. At one point she went back to kind of clear some things out of her garage and I didn't feel any connection to those things. Um, it was a, Yeah, it, it kind of fell into, it wasn't a documentary and it didn't feel like a piece of narrative and the Oscars have very clear categories for those. And I found it a bit of a strange kind of backdoor way of getting Getting into the best, best feature kind of category, but yeah, I just felt like the things it's been. I, I get you know it's like a six and a half out of ten film for me. Like it looked nice and was well done, but the the emotional heft and the aesthetic beauty of it are kind of like easily, uh, yeah, kind of they're in. They're not really earned through the narrative construct construction of a piece of created cinema. If you if you know what I mean by that.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I agree. The narrative is maybe the weaker part, where it you're not as well. It's not like gripping the actual her particular story. It, it has a documentary feel to it. It does feel more like sometimes you're just observing different facets of these people who have obviously like been displaced from their towns and or whatever through grief and loss. But I I liked it on the level where just as an exploration of grief and loss and how people deal with it and the sort of strange ways that people you know almost like the idea of trying sort of almost living with nearly nothing it's sort of this way of like not having any burdens but all those people are sort of all dealing with like it seems like a lot of them are dealing with like heavy losses and a very uh, I don't know it's like yeah the
0: poignancy and the heft of that is inherent to those people and the fact that they're real, it's got nothing to do with the film. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of what I mean. It's like, oh, isn't it, what, what a really difficult load that they're dealing with. Well, yeah, but that's got nothing to do with the film.
1: Yeah, it's almost like Francis McDormand's character is used as the eyes for us to see it. And, yeah. But like her But then is- just have a
0: documentary filmmaker do it because otherwise they're just sort of react. They're like playing sort of fic- fictitious versions of themselves, right? Like, one, a character in it goes and dies i think in real life that didn't happen you know so it's a little bit construct there's a sort of construction around the something that's already poignant and documentary like documentaries there for that it seems like a strange strange blurring
1: it's, yeah I, I i can see that and so at times i did feel like oh this probably this could have been a documentary and been as effective Mm. Um, The couple
0: of times i went oh wow or oh or whatever were just real people telling me things it was nothing to do with the film nomad land
1: yeah i I see what you mean distinction i see what you mean um but um but yeah there was kind of like a simple story there about like letting go or like you know and, and sort of almost her
0: there were a couple Dealing of Dealing with whether she
1: can whether she can like settle down or whether she's like wants to just live on the road forever. But yeah. I'm not saying like I'm not saying oh it's it's the best film of the year. I'm really no, I know. It. I know you're not no. it's more like I, I thought it was like I watched it with my mum and it's like we hadn't you know, we enjoyed what when watching it and sort of mm-hmm. were were kind of like absorbed for two hours or whatever. But it was a, there were there
0: were a couple of um I don't know, like, sort of unfortunate ironies with it. I I think one of them, if you're kind of anti or sort of feeling sorry for the the people that have been displaced and having to live these kinds of lives, Amazon was often portrayed as quite a sort of saviour in that film. And that, that just jarred a little bit, you know, like, oh, well, at least I can get work at Amazon. That felt strange, especially for a film that I don't think was distributed by Amazon. But um, that kind of felt weird, as did, you know, the Oscars put on an event at Union Station where they had to clear out the homeless community so that they could then have the event at the train station so that a millionaire actress could win an award for playing a homeless person in a venue where previously homeless (laughs) people were sleeping it it felt there was something very dissonant about that which yeah i don't know that's not no med land the film hollywood's
1: not going to survive if hypocrisy becomes (laughs) punishable
0: but i I felt like there's been a couple of films in the last did you see what i think it's called wild with reese witherspoon which is oh yeah yeah a kind of similar thing i thought that was a much better film uh, that's Nomadland. based
1: on Cheryl Strade's. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. I thought that was a much better film, sort of a more compelling performance. I think she was Oscar nominated for the year that, or whenever that was out. I mean, it's, it's not brilliant, but I think even Into the Wild does as good a job as Nomadland mm. does in many ways. And it's more of a film, like a kind of biopic about a person without straying into this sort of semi documentary. Yeah.
1: I mean, into the, into the Wild does that really well. It's just that's that's more almost based on a passion-based adventure right rather than sure yeah uh,
0: rather than a necessity thing but yeah it, but
1: yeah i get but it is a good uh a good portrayal of that sort of road life world yeah burden. uh yeah i i guess it's just yeah it's just i haven't seen like an intimate story trying to show that you know that side of america so much you don't see it that often you you sometimes see suburban or the rural America, but not not those not parts. in feature
0: films for sure. Yeah, I think there's um, plenty of documentary work probably does cover it, but yeah, but yeah, this, yeah, I heard
1: the Amazon thing jarred with some people. Um, but uh, I
0: didn't like personally <laughs> bother me, but it, it just felt straight. If like you've got a very clear cut, I don't know, issue, I, I mean, no doubt people in that community end up working for Amazon, so probably, probably quite do, a realistic yeah. portrayal, right? So, in that sense, it's fine, but it you know, it's like, oh, if you could be anything to anyone, be kind. And this kind of, the message that was coming across from a lot of the speeches they've done at different award ceremonies and things, it felt strange to give that company some sort of, like, yeah. greenwashing platform or, anyway.
1: I liked, um, I thought Frances McDormand was great. Um, She's always very good in what, he's always what, very what she good. does, right? Yeah, um, yeah. and, uh, yeah, I did. I did just like those little interactions when it's just, like, just seeing these different characters on the road and how they... Just how they live essentially. Yeah. But but yeah. Sometimes, George, one can romanticize that sort of that sort of life. Although I wouldn't want to live in a van.
0: I I, I have a lot of respect for that lifestyle. I, I mean if you can make it work at that kind of time in your life, it, often a lot of people like retirement age and stuff. I I think there was there's one line in the film that again really res like really resonated it was like I didn't want to woman's talking about her colleague like died like the day before he retired or something and she was like I didn't want to be the person who you know spent all my money building a sailboat and never get to sail it or something yeah. like that and i like really that yeah really resonates with me I think that's really powerful but again I don't think it's the sort of the powerfully beautifully scripted piece of work from Nomadland the film right it's just that's just a sentiment that lots of people in America hold so it's It's kind of winning the Best Picture Award for just expressing a a fairly common sentiment. Um, So that's my kind of tension between liking the film and appreciating what's going on in it.
1: I don't think it will stand out as one of the ones in the last decade, you
0: know. I'd be surprised if people are still watching that film.
1: Yeah.
0: It's going to go the way of Argo.
1: Or Spotlight. Spotlight, yeah. Uh, Spotlight's still... uh, we've we've had our debate about spoiler well hmm. not debate agreement agreement <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um yeah well uh, was there any other, was there anything other interesting what one best screenplay know, that's usually an uh,
0: uh, it was um, a promising young woman
1: oh i've heard that's good i want to see that i i
0: had a fun time watching it i would say i would say it's uh could have been better i think the way the ending is done is interesting and could have been a lot more powerful if delivered in a different way i think we talk about that after you've seen it um it was not without its flaws but very enjoyable and achieves its goal pretty well i think um there's some great there's one fabulous fabulous scene in it that features a paris hilton song it was just magnificently done one of my most enjoyable one of my favourite scenes of all the Oscars films this year, but it had, yeah, I don't know. It was it was good. It was a good screenplay. Um, it's like a, a, a film you would sit and watch and enjoy. It's like an an enjoyable watch. I think it's the best way to describe it.
1: Um, that's good. I'll watch it. Is it very smutty?
0: No, not really. No. 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 Right. No, it's not super smutty. I mean, it's smart it's smutty, but it's not like super smutty. <laughs> I don't know what the scale is. There. <laughs> no, it's, it's probably like a thir- like a twelve or thirteen rated film, maybe a fifteen. Right.
1: Um, yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll pop that on tonight, George, before bed.
0: Yeah, pop it on. Um, the- Oh, I hated. I think we've talked about this off pod. I think this is getting quite long now, so we can nip it in the bud. But I hated, absolutely hated, the trial of the Chicago Seven. Thought it was an atrocious film.
1: I know um, you did, and I, I didn't hate it, but yeah. you, I, I didn't, I didn't love it. But I, nah. I, thought it was a, I thought it was a competent sort of yeah, so It looked like a, a
0: made-for-TV made movie.
1: But, but as an Oscar, nominated, yeah, it's...
0: it's not an Oscar-nominated worthy film, really. Um, yeah, I think of all the Oscars films I've seen this year, maybe I think maybe Sound of Metal was the best, um, in a fairly like slightly average year. But I think that was probably the best of all of them.
1: I didn't say that
0: of the ones I've seen.
1: So oh, the far. Riz Ahmed one. Oh. Yeah,
0: his having not seen um, Anthony Hopkins' performance, Riz Ahmed's been the best performance of the ones I've seen so far.
1: Interesting. It's a weird year, isn't it? Because so much, none of us went to the cinema. Uh, I mean, yeah. literally saw tenant and that was it. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it, it does feel like a bit of a past year in a way.
0: Yeah, in many ways, yeah.
1: Yeah. And I'm sure some studios probably held back certain films that they didn't want to release during the past.
0: Uh, I mean, it's not normally Oscars fodder, is it? Like, the James Bond film's been held back for about 18 months now. Um, yeah. There's a lot of things where, you know, actors probably... <laughs> shot their scenes in like 2018
1: yeah yeah well um, that's the movies folks mm. uh, let's know what you thought of promising young woman trial of Chicago 7 mm. or a nomadland uh, you can email sh Hussey at gmail.com or follow me on Instagram uh, Steve- <laughs> so follow me on Instagram Stephen H hussey. At Stephen i C, I'm going to say that again. Or you can follow me on Instagram at Stephen Hussy. Where can they follow you, George?
0: On it, on Instagram if you want. Oh,
1: we'll search George, search George Taylor on Instagram. Don't we'll kill yourself today, I mean. And uh, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify if you don't already. And go and check out my YouTube channel, Stephen Hussey, YouTube.com slash Stephen Hussey and YouTube Stephen not... Husssey,
0: YouTube.com.
1: No, youtube.com slash Stephen Hussey. Uh, and give that a subscribe as well. Huh. Well, thanks my uh... Well
0: old, child. old old child? <laughs>
1: well thanks for my uh sorry um,
0: Steve, are you now going to hang up the mic and sign up to that book dating website uh
1: that's the game plan we uh <laughs> we have to kick off the summer of love and i'm i'm gonna I'm gonna do some ludicrous poses with books just to really yeah. have that. So yeah, nude, will, but
0: for a carefully placed normal. That will
1: tick off another week of this quarantine. So, yeah, that's something to do. All right, cheers, buddy. I will see you very soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, guys. Bye bye.